today's podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies, we have a presentation by Suzanne Wilson-Higgins, recorded on 13th of February 2012. Suzanne's presentation is called New Product Development, Using Print-on-Demand and E-Book Digital Workflows to Execute Publishing Strategies. Suzanne Wilson-Higgins is the UK Sales and Marketing Director at Lion Hudson PLC. This talk is introduced by Sheila Lambie, and the audience is made up of students on the MA Publishing Programme. So I'd like to welcome our speaker today, Suzanne Wilson-Higgins. Uh, she's going to uh, talk us through a whole range of issues that she's um, an expert on, and we're really grateful for her, to her for coming today because she has a fantastically busy schedule, uh, including visitors from America who turned up unexpectedly on Friday and who appear to be occupying time. most of her time. So we're very glad and very lucky to have her. So over to Suzanne. So I thought I'd start off by explaining where I've come from so you can see um, the, what my background is. So I've, I'm actually currently at a publishing company in Oxford called Lion Hudson. We do a lot of children's books, uh, a lot of Bibles for children, so we're a Christian publisher. We do a lot of um, books for adults in the kind of history, um, that kind of, kind of genre. We have some fiction um, that we also do. We also represent a whole bunch of other companies in the UK market. So we, um, we're able to punch a bit bigger than our list, which is about 1,000 live titles in print, um, probably about 5,000 ever since we started 40 years ago. So it's that kind of size, independent publisher. Um, we have uh, about 850 shareholders, um, and it's, um, uh, I've been there a year. So it's fairly new, but we've put a lot of things in place in the last year, and I'm gonna talk about a couple of those within the context of this. My background was with uh, a company which is really now known as Ingram, it's owned by Ingram, was Lightning Source, which is a service which you may or may not have heard of, which is print on demand and eBooks. Um, and in fact, we were eBooks from the very beginning, but eBooks have become prominent again. Um, they went through a phase, I think, where eBooks was, and I thought it was quite important to talk about that relationship between the print and the electronic, because that has really shifted gears in the last probably two years, 18 months, but in this market in the UK, has really shifted in the last year um, towards ebook. But there are some underpinning new product development issues about having these different media output. So I'm, I'm trying to bring it together into two streams. Before that, I worked in um, marketing primarily, but product development for electronic products for um, Blackwell's doing library supply. So we were doing um, a lot of library specific type of, um, well, net library now would be the kind of thing that we did. <laughs> so that was sold to EBSCO, but that's um, the kind of products. And then before that, I worked what was Heinemann Professional, Butterworth Heinemann became, in effect, Reed Elsevier. So that's with, a, obviously, a big STM publisher now. But back when I worked for it, they actually had a whole trade division. So I was working with both professional books, but also some trade books on multimedia projects. Um, so that probably dates how old that was <laughs> a long time ago. But um, anyway, there are my contact details. And I'll, you know, obviously, you have those on the sheets, if there's anything you want to, um, to ask. So this is the outline I thought we'd follow. I start off looking at print on demand and how that's impacted the industry, showing different examples from different publishers using different types of services um, that are available, and also some of the economics behind print on demand and why that's, um, that shift has happened. Then to look very briefly at eBooks, I'm sure you're covering that elsewhere, but just to, to because I think these two things dovetail so much, and I've, I've really seen that this year in particular where we're seeing XML move forward to look at then print on demand and ebooks. How do you actually get to this publishing on demand scenario, which so many publishers are engaged with now, um, and really looking at one workflow and then multiple outputs as a kind of mindset, which a lot of the traditional publishers have to really change gears to think differently uh, to make that happen. But it's where they have, where some publishers have done a great job moving that way. It's, it's transformed the way they can develop and repurpose content into different formats. So that's the introduction. So why print on demand? Um, basically a list here of the key kind of 
business reasons um, that would help underpin. And these are all different titles that were done. And I put Lightning Source down. So I'm using, I'm drawing from a number of different vendors actually for this presentation. But Lightning Source, I obviously used to work there, so I have quite a few of their examples. One of the key things is, is that it, surprisingly, a lot of people think of print on demand or have thought of it as it's, oh, it's really deep backlist, it's old stuff, or it's um, uh, very, very slow moving backlist. Um, but in fact, that's not how it's been used even from the very beginning. People are using it in the life cycle of the book at different points. Making new titles available is one of the key things that it does. The, the whole author services um, move in the marketplace to self-publishing, of which two-thirds of all the output of ISBNs are self-published um, last year, um, is actually fueled and enabled by print-on-demand. For better or worse, some people hate it, <laughs> but that's, um, it, that's how it's done. So people like Lulu and Author Solutions um, and, and the leaders in, in that self-publishing, which is and now create space, obviously, from Amazon, um, are all fueled and, and enable print in, on a print-on-demand basis. So digital printing, one at a time. In other words, you're printing only when an order comes, not uh, when, it, not for stock that's sitting somewhere. <clears throat> the, the second thing that helps do is keep conventionally printed titles <coughs> in print. So if you've gone through um, a, a, a printing cycle, and I did actually bring an example for one of my books, which I'll talk about a bit later, but I'll, I'll hold these up now. So you've gone through and had a lovely hardback jacketed, fantastic bite of the cherry, and then you go and you create a nice conventional, fairly uh, long uh, run uh, paperback. Again, you can see the kind of production values. You've got nice shiny bits on it, your gold and everything else going on. Then you get to a point where it's just not economic to keep reprinting or keeping these things. The demand has gone to a certain level. So you then start looking at digital options. And this is a lightning source, this is an Amazon. It shows you the different, that the reason they're different sizes is you've got a templated approach from lightning and it'll do it to exactly your trim size from Amazon. But there are different types of books. So if they'll stand up, they may bang later, who knows. Um, but those are the different versions. So you can see that there's can be a kind of life cycle and obviously in parallel with that you could have an e-book. So basically keeping a conventional book and title available, that's a key thing. Um, eliminating reprint decisions. So you get to a point where you can say, I don't have to think about, is it economically viable to reprint or not? You've done your bites at the cherry earlier, and then you go, okay, now we can just put it on demand and we'll just let the market decide what it wants, and then the revenue just comes in. Um, it helps you to eliminate, as again, this is an inefficiency. Making reprint decisions takes management time, so you don't want to waste time doing it. Um, reducing or eliminating on-hand inventory. Again, I always imagine a warehouse full of books. Basically, it's just a whole bunch of pound notes stuffed together in a binding. <laughs> it's money that you're putting on the shelf. And it's your cash, especially when you're having to borrow money to uh, finance printing and then to put it into stock, it's money. So you really want to minimize, and I mean minimize, it doesn't mean it's necessarily completely inventory free, but minimize how much money you're having to invest in stock while still maximizing your sales. I mean, historically, you used to have to pile loads of books into bookshops. Well, there aren't that many left now, unfortunately, but that's the way you know, the, the market has gone. So you used to have loads of stock going out to the marketplace, loads of returns coming back. And that tide still keeps coming in and out today, but it's a much lower level than it used to be. And print-on-demand is a part of the mix that has helped that become a little bit more efficient. Um, so reducing or eliminating on-hand inventory. Export through distributed printing. So the idea, so in an Amazon uh, uh, model, the CreateSpace model, they have sites in Germany, UK, US, um, and Japan. So you can actually export, and I'm doing this right now. I uploaded my first 50 titles on Friday to CreateSpace uh, from Lion Hudson. And we're exporting to Japan and Germany, which is then reaching the rest of Europe, because it'll go into France, Italy, and Spain websites, our first batch of on-demand titles. Um, it means it's an inexpensive way of doing it, because having to have a distributor in those markets, if you don't have one for your English language version, 
We, we, we do rights deals, of course, so we have local language versions of many things. But if someone doesn't take up the language rights, you may still want to make your English language book available as broadly as possible. So it's a way of, of actually exporting books. Um, Ingram cover Australia, US, and UK, so you have, and France. So you actually have different markets being covered by different vendors. So for a complete solution, it would probably be good to have multiple vendors um, to do your, your on-demand. But ex so exporting is a key thing, and, it can, and you can also, they also do local reseller deals so that they're selling your books internationally, locally in those markets, and they have local knowledge. The other thing that um, kind of came along was look at the idea of doing large print or special editions. Um, there's a, a number of people who have actually read How You Want, as a company you may have heard of, but they repurpose into lots of different font sizes books, mostly for digital consumption now, but they also make available certain uh, like 16.18 point size books in uh, a POD model, and that works extremely well, um, which enables those books to be available that just wouldn't be available. Um, and then custom publishing is the last one, and I've got examples of most of these things. Um, custom publishing, particularly in the textbook arena, ha is really quite fundamental. The idea that you pull together different materials that a, a lecturer wants and put it into a custom book just for that course. Um, people like Cengage and Pearson are very active in doing that today. It's, it's a very significant part of where they're going uh, as businesses because it also, also helps them lock in uh, a lecturer or an institution into a relationship. Not that the lecturer or the institution necessarily likes that, but that's the tension that's there. But it is quite a successful business model for them and they've been doing it in the States for quite a while and they've rolled it out here as well. Right, so who's using POD Day? I mean, really, I probably could just say everyone, but I'll, I'll highlight by groups. So you've got your traditional book publishers, and I mentioned I'm going to give you a couple of examples of STM and trade, religious. I'm not really going to go into much detail on educational publishers. They are a little bit different. I um, mentioned Pearson already, but I, I haven't got any work examples of those. The traditional um, and new journal publishers, and what I mean by new ones, I'm thinking more open access type journal models. So where you've got, um, uh, it's just a mode of delivery and that someone could opt into. So you may have a free journal, but you may opt into a print version, for instance. Um, and also, and, and these are coming from databases typically because journals have been electronic for a long time and have been operating in an electronic way. So you're starting with your electronic first anyway and then moving to a print option. Um, and then your non-traditional publishers. I've mentioned author services um, as a segment, and I think uh, there's a number of them, but it really author solutions and create space, probably the two biggest. Micros being very, very small publishers. I think the IBG said to me, I think they had 200 new publishers, digital publishers, join the IPG, which is quite extraordinary. And so there's, because of cloud computing and a lot of the things that you can get your hands on in terms of publishing technology now, there's, there are quite a few startups that are, and a micro would be an example of that, or somebody who is self-publishing one or two books themselves for personal interest. Um, databases, and I'll talk about a few of those, loads of different sources of databases that can actually generate books. Um, and then aggregators and libraries, and I will give a British library example as well. Okay, so jumping into the examples, turning on demand from scans. So I thought I'd look at the different ways you can source um, to, to do a print-on-demand. So you can scan old books, and that's probably why the reputation of, of really deep backlist and old stuff came out, because where you've got out-of-copyright classics, you can see the, ma the market is actually quite crowded now for those. That wasn't really the case 10 years ago, but they're using on-demand technology to make that happen. Um, this example is, um, was, was, is, has been very innovative in the way they've done it in marketing, but Faber Finds, um, which is using a service called um, uh, Gardner's um, on-demand service, which is run by a printing company called CPI in the background. So that's a different vendor from CreateSpace or, or Lightning Source. Um, these are relaunching classics in a um, kind of authentic way from original editions. And I think in the background, because Faber have really been quite cutting edge in this, they are actually doing ebooks as well. So they've got, they're actually using um, tagged XML files rather than um, 
facsimiles. So that so that's a, a real book file, but being relaunched in the original way. This one is a British Library example. These are facsimiles. So again, they're they're using some um, they're using scanning and leaving it, I think, as it is, if you look at some of these books, very much as a facsimile rather than scanning to digitize. So you can scan to digitize and you can to, to actually then create a searchable file, or you can just leave it as a as an actual image. And in these ones, they're images. I, I pulled these up because that's Dickens. It's a whole 19th century collection. Um, and they're doing some interesting things. At the moment, they're just available in paperback. And despite the fact they'd announced they were going to do ebooks, they still haven't released the ebooks. And I think that will be something to do with the fact that they've started with these scans. They then have to digitize. Quite a lot of cost involved with turning a uh, what is in effect a manuscript, a printed manuscript into ebook, because you've got to create it into a searchable file. So I think that's just taking them longer, um, and uh, uh, they'll, they'll get there eventually. <coughs> but again, this is a database, it's a massive collection of books which are uniquely held in some cases. I mean, I, some of these are extracts or readings, but they have quite a unique collection at the British Library, and um, it's, it's tapping into that and creating a new database. The book I brought along, 1536, um, we could class ourselves as a traditional trade publisher. We are a niche. Obviously, we're in a specialist area, but we are, we are, we're selling to the trade as opposed to academic. Um, in, in that model, you're going through the whole life cycle of the book. Um, and the, the reason I brought this one along was that it has color in it um, as well. And you can see how the color compares between a traditional uh, original book, um, which would be on a slightly higher quality paper. I can pass these around if you like. Um, uh, with the, so you can see it's a bit richer on here because you've got a, a shiny gloss paper, and this one's a bit flat because it's a matte paper. But it's good enough. Is the point? <laughs> it's not. You wouldn't necessarily want to do, you know, your first big edition that way. But it ends up being fine, and this is that's from a, a lightning source system, and this is from a, an Amazon system. But they're really they're two different technologies. One's Xerox, and one is um, HP. So it's worth just comparing. But they are really quite good. And digital print is really going through a revolution in color. And I've been told next year, must say next year by by the summer of this year, you'll be looking at about two and a half cents a page for color, which is kind of uh, twice what black and white is, but it's about a tenth of what it was three years ago. So it's really changing the, co the whole nature of color printing. And it just wasn't economic for books, really, um, until we got to a certain point where the page rate of, it's a bit like photocopying. It's much cheaper, higher high enough quality, but cheap enough to replicate. Um, so yeah, so that I think that's all I want to say about that one. That's ours. This is more of a journal example. So this is both books and journals. This is a publisher that's doing both. Um, they started off with the journals, but they also have some very high specialist um, books. Um, uh, Hindawi are do open access publishing as well. So they're kind of an interesting example. Um, but they have a whole set of books which are very STM and, and niche. But they've opened up. Um, it's opened them up to have a stockless solution. So they don't have any physical stock of anything. It's completely on demand. Um, and it's, like I say, serving two different types of things. So if you had a journal model, a subscription model, or if you had a, um, you know, a transactional model like book selling, it works. This one's another database, um, IFIS. Again, it's a, this is more of an STM area. It's food research probably drifting more into corporate, away from like heavy science, but it's more of an institutional purchase. They started off as a big database where they gather all the food research of, of the world into one big database. It's an abstract and indexing database. And then they were producing originally a printed volume that summarized all of that. That eventually moved on to CD-ROM and then eventually moved to a World Wide Web-based database, which is what we're, we'll be using now. But they did have some print copies required, particularly print extracts from the database. And they only had demand for about 200 of those. And it worked really well to be able to keep available 
a printed version or printed extracts from the database. Um, and I know other people, you know, Taylor and Francis and Informa use this technology in the same way when they're talking about industry reports. So they do high-end, Informa do high-end industry reports. Most, of, most people are taking them digitally, but some people just want to have a printed copy. And it gives you the choice. So it means you don't have to make a massive investment, but you can still have both media available and customers can choose, which is a, is a better um, solution. They also did a whole series of dictionaries, which were basically um, these two here, but the far side, um, which are both hardback and paperback versions of it. So the other thing is you can keep things available in multiple formats. So you don't have to always have a paperback. You can do a, um, a hardback if you have the right price point. If you notice they're like 90 pounds or 84 pounds, well, it's no problem to do a hardback, which is going to cost you maybe a fiver. But obviously, if your retail price was a fiver, that's a problem. So you have to kind of consider what the unit cost is. Um, in this model, but it shouldn't be the overbearing factor. You need to think about the market and the pricing um, and then consider what the, the cost uh, benefit is. In this market, it's um, definitely worth pursuing. Custom books. This is the example, um, and I did update this one looking at how they're doing it because they've now monetized it. When I, I was involved with signing this up with Wikipedia, and um, this was a custom book solution. Basically, whereby you could go onto Wikipedia and make any book you want and then push a button and it would, you'd then pay for having it printed really and then you could use it. So this was, co there was this breaching co you know, copyright, but you know, Wikipedia, you donate the content. Once it's up there, it's not yours anymore. Um, what's interesting is that they've now moved it into a commercial model which is somewhat functional <laughs> in the charging $48 for, for this book. <laughs> so they're, they're actually, what they're doing is helping their users to monetize it. So if you spent time and effort pulling together all these different parts of Wikipedia into a collection, they're allowing you to charge. Um, so it's a very, very interesting move and we'll see what happens. I mean, I think Wikipedia is looking for money all over the place to keep itself going and this obviously is one of those areas. <laughs> So you get basically your, your communi community of um, users or the community of authors, and then you're, you're creating it. And I think it's a model worth thinking about for conventional publishers because these things are going to be going on, and they will either <coughs> you know, have our lunch or they'll encroach on what we're doing, but it's definitely there, so it's worth being aware. And it's POD that's enabling this to happen. And you can create an e-book as well. That's the other, other thing you can do. So I've kind of been mentioning different models. So if I just pull, uh, just flag that a bit, a bit stronger, perhaps. The, the, the models that are there are really helping to um, manage inventory um, and to reduce that cash investment. There's all those books full of notes that you're kind of reducing your cash investment. And the, the, there's kind of three approaches out there, and I thought it'd be worth just running through them. So the short run uh, to stock, so this is where you are still printing for stock. You're going to hold some. Um, and there's a number of distributors who are actually offering that service. A number in the U.S. have partnered with printing firms. Marston, who I'm mentioning here, Marston Digital, have, have bought, they bought one. They bought a printing company and then put the facility inside their warehouse. So the idea that you, um, and History Press are an example of some people who are actually doing this today, you can, um, you can actually print maybe 50, maybe 25. It doesn't have to be very many, but small batches which are then held in stock. And you're typically trying to optimize your unit cost and stock holding, because you know, your stock holding is going to cost, you know, to actually keep it in a distributor somewhere between, you know, 7 and 10%. So it's going to cost you money to have um, books in a distribution facility. Um, but, yeah. Sorry, sure. Does this, is the history press linked with Marston for as distribution. Anyway. Yes. So they're yeah. distributors in any case That's right. for the history press. They are, yes. Okay. So it, it makes sense if you're if it's integrated with Otherwise what they they're doing. Otherwise they have to ship it to somewhere else. Yes. Another distributor which would be extra cost. It would be, yeah. And you would have more shipping costs. And you want to try and keep your shipping costs down as much as possible. Um, but short runs, it does work. You can still do digital short run. I mean, really, un anything under a thousand units is kind of a short run. So it's you. You can do uh, quite a lot in that space. And with, but you are having to take on board the fact that your cash is in those books, 
and you're paying a distributor to hold them. So the important things to remember. The next model is looking at stockless or virtual inventory or inventory free. And this is where Lightning Source really started the game of not having any um, stock at all. You just, um, as per the old Dell computer ad where you said you, 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 um, you buy it, build it. So you actually buy the thing and then they make the computer to your spec and then it comes very quickly. So the idea of marrying just-in-time manufacturing with the order. So you're actually ordering and delivering. So there's no, there's no need to hold any because it's virtual inventory. Uh, Amazon tend to use the words inventory free um, in their models. Um, so it depends if they, but those are the kinds of things, stockless or virtual inventory, inventory free. And I just threw an example of, of a, an organization in Oxford who um, has uh, African Book Collective who has 100%. Everything they do, again, is, is completely stockless. That's probably less common to have everything stockless. Um, most organizations would have a mixed portfolio um, of these different models. And they evaluate the books and look at the ISBNs and say, well, what's the demand of those books? Well, okay, let's move it from one model to the next model. So you need to be aware that people are actually managing it as a portfolio typically annually reviewing the ISBNs on their list. And then ultra short run, um, which I certainly encountered with Wiley, and I believe they're still doing this uh, out of Chichester. I spoke to Charlie Knobs recently. But um, that basically they're, they're rolling a six-week stocking plan. So they're forecasting, their systems will forecast the demand for this period is, uh, is X. It's like, let's say we're going to sell 15 in the next six weeks. It will then have 15 ordered and it keeps replenishing so that you always have 16 weeks predicted stock. So you're relying on your system and your historical sales and various data going in to say this is what you keep available. Uh, so that would be a very variable number in terms of the number of units depending on what you're selling over a six week period. Um, and that could be a combination of big, because if you're selling you know, a thousand a month or something, then you'd want a big long run and you'd want stock and it would make sense to do it that way because you could get a very low unit cost and you could keep your distribution costs under control and measure them. Or you could go digital and have digital print uh, stocked or go completely virtual. Um, but that's, a, a, that's kind of a halfway house in a way, but it can be a very successful way of managing and then you're in control of the whole, um, the whole thing from beginning to end. Right, how am I doing? Okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, let's get the plow on. Right, okay, another model, which again, this is now looking at, at virtual um, uh, inventory, is having the espresso machine, which you may have heard of, because there is one in Oxford. So um, it was in London for some time, and um, it's now moved. But this has been more successful in a way in the library segment than the retail segment because a lot of for specialist stuff that you just want to put through, a lot of publishers have been putting their books into the, um, into the database that's supported by Espresso. Ingram had a deal with them, so they were actually feeding books into it at one point. I think they're still doing some of that. But a lot of publishers trade directly with Espresso, so you have your own Espresso deal. But um, the idea is that you're making the books beginning to end. So this big machine, I mean, it's not that big actually, it's kind of a big photocopier, but it's binding and gluing and all the things that you would do on a, on a production floor, uh, all within a machine. The problem with it is there's things go wrong and it breaks down and you have to have an engineer out. So it's not the best technical solution because it's very reliant on it working and being, being um, functional at the time that you want it. Um, so I think it has, it's not perfect, but it is an interesting model, and I think we'll see more of that kind of thing happening as we go forward. <coughs> okay, and then a kind of a footnote um, on this, and then we'll jump into the E and then looking at E and, and POD. Um, the kind of, the trends in printing. Um, so there is a gradual shift, and if you talk to someone like Gardner, <coughs> who had to build a whole new warehouse at recently and fit it with equipment, they're looking at locations that hold 20 books, and they think that's normal. You know, so that it, you, it has shifted from having lots and lots of pallets for, in a wholesale environment down to lots of small locations. And you can see that. TBS, if you go to uh, the Random House um, Distribution Center, similarly, they have very, very quick turnaround, small locations at the front, in addition to these big pallets of make lots of books. So 
more or even micro inventory or virtual inventory. And there's a lot of people importing and exporting, as I mentioned before, through, say, Amazon or Ingram without any inventory using POD. Um, that is accelerating, not least because, for instance, you know, Amazon can show you the demand through their system of where your books are actually needed. And that's a huge eye-opener to realize you're missing all these sales in places who people have wanted to try and get your books. That They can look at glances and they can look at the actual uh, attempt, you know, people who are trying to order your books and can't get them. Um, and that will extend to other retailers as they get more sophisticated, I would suggest. I mean, not everybody's as sophisticated as that, but you can get it. I think in due course we will. Okay, physical distribution is kind of shifting to globally distributed print. So as I mentioned, that kind of exporting and distributed print, not only through the front end, through say a retailer, but also in the back end. You've got networks of printing organizations coming, kind of coming together as well. So you have mutual agreements. If you put your book in, uh, say an Edwards Brothers printer in um, the US, you can have it come out of another pr printer in, um, in Europe. So you have these networks in the background going on. So you can make up, set your book up once and then have it available through different technology. I think Print On Demand do that. There's um, Print On Demand Limited have that arrangement so you can print into different places. Um, that's the name of a company, Print On Demand. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the other thing that's happening is that the technology is improving and the quality is improving while the price is being reduced. Is being reduced. So I've mentioned color, the price of color coming down. The, but the quality is really going up because digital print quality is improving. And it's very, very difficult now to tell, especially if you're using digitally originated material. So if you've made everything digitally and then you go to print it digitally, you're not trying to move between one color standard to a different color standard and you have loss of quality. The more that's being digitally originated, the better the quality is when it comes out in digital print. So it's that factor as well as the actual print machines and what's being improved, people like HP and, and uh, Xerox, who are improving it. So, yeah. Could you just give us um, an idea of the costs? You mentioned two yes. and a half cents a, a page. Yeah, I mean, there's... Because the um, this time last year, 70 you penny a page. last year, yeah. there was no color. No, no. Except no. in it's the changed. States. Yeah, the, the, um, the, the basic, if you want, like a list cost, if you'd like, even now, um, looking at several vendors, the kind of, if you don't have a deal or a discount, but let's face it, if you have enough more titles, you'd want to carve a deal. But a basic, if you just cruise up and try to get something done, 70 pence for the cover, a penny a page for black and white interior is the baseline for um, POD. There are all kinds of variants, like the, if it's a really big book, or if it's a, there could be some different things. But that's the baseline for a paperback. Um, you're then looking at a lot more when it's a hardback, because you're handcrafting stuff. And only a few vendors even do hardback. So it's a lot less choice with hardback. So but paperback, that's the case. Um, you're then, you, if you were looking at today's kind of list price, you're kind, still kind of looking at between sort of eight pence a page for the color. Um, to do cult per page, which is very expensive when you start looking at commercial publishing books. This works brilliantly for Sainsbury's doing, you know, lots of things. It doesn't work for, um, for, for really for, for books. And um, the big breakthrough will be getting to about one and a half pence a page. And I hear that's kind of coming, maybe two pence a page you could live with. But um, the other issue is that there's some of the pricing models, like uh, an Amazon pricing model would have, you could pay just for the color pages that you're printing, where in the Ingram pricing model, you have to pay for every single page in the book because they're running the whole book through a color machine. So you, where the color machine is being used, it, you're, they're being charged a rate. So you have to, it has to fit in with that. Does that help? Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. great. So if, you, if we were looking at the cost for a 250-page paperback book, normal A5-ish size, yeah. size, I think last year we talked about something like 7.99. The costs. 
Mm. To the well, for two, no, two forty plus seven DP. I can't do math. Somebody help me out. Three, but three ten is that? <laughs> Whatever so that is. So that was the unit five. cost. Okay, the unit what, cost for for a two hundred and forty page. It'll be two two pound forty plus seventy p. That's 70 the unit cost. And if there was, that's with no color inside. No color inside. Okay, so that's getting that's pretty cheap because it used to be a much higher setup cost. Originally, it was. That really has changed because most people are dealing with digital files, and there are some charges. I mean, there are charges for if your files are a mess and you've got to scan them. Yes, that's expensive. If you have digital files and you can tweak them, you can get virtually free for, for setup. So the unit cost has been kind of hovering around there for some time, but you, it's all about the, the preparation time and the files that makes all the difference. And that's actually quite a good segue into my next bit because the files are really, really important because you also want to do eBooks. Who's making eBooks today? Everybody, <laughs> just in case you didn't think they were. Um, if, you, if, you get your, if you get your digital assets in order, then you have, or if you're launching something new and you're thinking about commissioning new assets, you've got to make sure your digital assets can be repurposed into different outputs. Fiction at the moment is going through a revolution um, in that we and we have a few fiction. We've seen it happen. I mean, we, we've paid now. We've got our, our our fiction. One of our five fiction authors is our highest paid author uh, overnight because in America, his books have just taken off uh, on ebook. And um, what you're seeing is all kinds of interesting things happen with ebooks. So I thought I'd just pull this. This is from a, a Kindle um, store. But you can see that there's mass, almost all categories here. So you, and you've got some very niche categories, which I think are kind of interesting. I don't know what men's, what's men's adventure? Can anybody tell me what men's adventure is? Anyway, that's uh, one of the um, categories. So lots of niche categories. And a couple of the categories are just phenomenally taking off. Um, and particularly in thrillers and crime and mystery, exponential, people just can't get enough of it, really. Um, and also in romantic fiction, which we'll get to in a minute, so I'm going to show you Mills and Boone. Um, but they, you look at the paid stuff. So you, these are kind of you know available downloads, and you're looking at these price points. Ah, my goodness, yeah, it's frightening. Um, and then you, you look at that. What, you know, these are ones that they're actually paying for. You know, a kind of you know one, two pounds at tops. And then you also look at the freeze, and what you also discover is that a lot of people are giving away. So if you had a, an author who maybe you've signed up three or five books with a fiction author. You might want to, and we're seeing this routinely happen, give away the first book. Get people reading it and hooked on reading the rest because that seems to be it's quite a bold thing to do, but it's what a lot of publishers are doing today in ebook. Um, so free is actually part of the mix, but you need to do your numbers very carefully on that because obviously you're giving away stuff. Um, and so it, it's, but it is part of the equation. So when you're doing your ebook preparation, you'll be having, you'll be creating files. You'll want, you then have, need to get ultimately to an EPUB, and presumably you're talking about this somewhere else. I'm assuming, <laughs> but EPUB is very important for the industry. That it's a standard. Uh, yes, sure. Sorry, I yeah. just have a question. Um, with giving away something like that on a digital content for free, how does that affect kind of, if you know, rights kind of for? It's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point because you, it has to be limited. You need to ring fence it because you, most contracts with, say, authors would have, you know, that you can do promotions for a certain amount of time in order to generate publicity for the book. So what I'm saying, it wouldn't be necessarily free forever. Sometimes it's free under a time stamp or sometimes... Um, uh, to do with an offer, or you know, if you bought the whole series, it's free. Or you know, there's ways of packaging it to reduce your risk. But it's quite surprising how many are actually going for free um, in order to get the bigger sale, which is maybe a collection of, of books. Um, and also, you're being offered now by the e-retailers promotional opportunities. So you can run a promotion for two weeks, or you can run a promotion for you know, when they come out with the new readers and that kind of thing, they like to get people all rushing in to buy those books. So they try to do um, some deals, maybe a one-pound download for a whole range of titles, that kind of thing. And you have to be careful about what you put in, but it's part of your marketing plan now to work out what you should put in and for what period of time and when. What it did for us was we had a book called Unquiet Bones, 
which got catapulted into the best-selling um, historical um, murder mystery category. And that made it visible all of a sudden. And then the sales went exponential on it. And I talked to Faber, and that's exactly their experience. If you can lob a title into a best-selling list, everybody who looks at those lists, which is quite a big community globally when you start looking at you know, online retailers, wants it. And so you end up with people getting hooked. And then people who may not, wouldn't have maybe heard of that author because it wasn't particularly well-known would have, um, and didn't have the big publicity budgets that some of the bigger houses have supporting it. They, they, it helps the sales. So that's definitely happened to us. Um, but I think it's important to take that on board when you're looking at commercial models. You need to figure out what are you going to be prepared to give away and what you're not going to give away. Um, and exploiting both digitally, this, once you've got this digital file, you can wrap it in an EPUB and make it available <coughs> as well as making it POD available from a print-ready PDF for a print. So there are different files involved, but it's the same digital assets that's underpinning it. So you need to think through how you're preparing them. And I picked a couple of favorite examples here because they're very good. Um, and some very interesting, innovative ways of doing things. But I picked this out. So I just picked three titles that, to show how people are using digital to, uh, and how it's affecting publication and release dates and timings and what do you do when and which product do you come out with first. Everyone's kind of experimenting in that. So, so for instance, in this one, you've got a, a expected date, pub date of December 2012, but you can pre-order your Kindle edition now. So they're building up Jews, in effect, virtual Jews in a virtual environment that says this is how, what the level of demand is for this. And then you can, when you release it, you'll release all your dues. And they may decide to do it early, or they may decide to do it at the same time as the book. But those are things you need to be thinking about now. When you, most publisher has, publishers have been coming out of what I would call the conversion phase, they've been going, and I'm in that right now with Lion Hudson. You're, we've got a lot of books that we have, but we haven't turned them into ebooks yet. That's one whole area of project. The interesting bit is actually what are we going to do going forward with how to publish new and original works simultaneously into different media and different channels. Um, and so this is kind of the, the bleeding edge of, of that. So you could, you could have, in this case, they've come up with a Kindle and a hardcover. Again, this is released in May. But they're going to launch a hardcover, which is kind of premium price, and a Kindle edition, which is obviously <coughs> less expensive, but it's you know, for that market. And then here's one here where they've got an interestingly expensive um, Kindle and a, a paperback edition, almost the same price when you look at the, the markdown that Amazon's put on the paperback. So it's so a 16.99 original gone down to 10, and then the, the 10 is uh, there for the Kindle edition as well. So it's, I just think it's interesting to see, obviously the retailers are applying their discounts, if you like, these crossed out, these are the list prices, and then this is crossed out, so that's what they are, are then charging or offering to the customer. But I think it's interesting to see these combinations of hardback, Kindle, Kindle, paperback. Which, so think about what you want to do when you're actually bringing out something new. You could pre-launch in an electronic form or you could bring it in later. Um, we're looking at doing one with a television program. We basically have a television program that we think is coming out next Christmas, but we don't know the dates because the BBC don't tell you until five minutes beforehand. And then you find out, and we can now do the ebook with the program. So that was our goal. We're thinking have the ebook all set and we'll release the ebook simultaneously with the program and then we'll worry about the print edition after because we just can't, we don't know if it's going to be, there's no point in shoving it into shops if the program's not airing. So um, it allows you a bit more flexibility. Okay, the publishing on demand. So this is, I've called publishing on demand bringing together these things of e and print on demand because again, it's the same kind of workflow, the same kind of underpinning thinking about what you're going to do with your assets. And what you're finding is there's lots of creative um, things going on right now, if you go out and look. Um, but they're giving customers choice, and I think that's a really important thing. So some people are going to be much more comfortable staying with print. Other people are going to be very happy, digital natives running off to electronic. And you need to cater for both <laughs> if you're going to really be able to get to your customers. Um, the other thing is that they're expecting constant availability. I mean, Amazon's, if you're in London, you can order a book, a paper book, at, by 
noon, one o'clock, I think it is, and it will be at your house by 6 p.m. That's the lunch and service level. For, I mean, that's just crazy, but it's what people expect now. It's a very, and obviously immediately when you're talking about digital media, people expect it all to work and to work now. So people's expectations, I think, are very high, but you need to be able to respond to that and have constant availability in whatever media they choose to be buying in. Um, just mention the kind of glances. that can, You can do, take this data from your own websites. You can take data from retail websites, but looking at glances, how often people are looking at your books, and then looking at attempted purchases to help create this, um, this information on measured demand. There's people that, who want your book, but who are they, what are they? You want to start capturing data about those people um, and start to measure what uh, the demand is if they can't get something. And then you need to try and respond to that to make sure that they can get it. Um, and I think that all of the Jews, the idea that you've got virtual Jews is kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, when you're looking at maybe high demand products and then you're looking at low demand products, I think there are different solutions for both. And I think this is an important one um, on, on high demand products because the, the thinking might be, oh, it's, we're going to do a nice big print run and it's all going to be great and it's all going to go out conventionally. The trouble is that often it's just wrong. You, you get the wrong information. So um, if um, the example I used to like to use was, the, um, was a biography of a now not very famous <laughs> or, or demoted politician in the United States, but I won't, so I won't use that one. Um, but okay. it, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, keep, I'll, I'll, I'll use another example. Um, there, well, well, actually, there was one, a good one, um, which was a Nobel Prize winning book. Um, and I'm trying to think of the publisher who did it, but it was a, a publisher who had a literary um, book that, and the author, and it had backlist of it, and the author suddenly won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And the books was, was spiraling out of, the demand was just spiraling out of control. They couldn't, in order to get the Lytho run done, they had a six-week lead time, and they couldn't get it done fast enough. The announcement was made, everybody wanted it now. And they filled the gap, hence the word gap printing, which is an Ingram coined phrase, gap, to fill the gap between when um, the information is known and having the book in Lytho available in conventional stock. They filled the gap with digital printing on demand so as not to lose the sales uh, when that happened. Um, I kind of like uh, the Amazon wording, which is this in-stock protection. Their view is, and, and this has really become the norm, in the, in the, is to put every single book you have as you do it, as part of your workflow, into an on-demand scenario. So you have files that are prepared for that event when it eventually sells through your conventional runs and is then ready to go. So you have n no break or um, miscontinuity or discontinuity between editions. Uh, you just keep the whole thing going. Because what their experience is on, on the e-retail side is that when you take a book down, you lose momentum with it, you lose sales, and they just don't want to disappoint customers. So it's that continuity of availability um, and using the technology to fill gaps and also to protect yourself for when you have a high spike in demand. Susanna, are there any, there's sort of a dilemma with quality there. I don't know what sort of book that was, if it was yeah. illustrated, because I mean, that looks, that looks really good, but there is a difference in quality. And there so is. If the, if the gap um, purchasers had the, the book, the title that was perceived as lesser quality, could that be bad publicity for the publisher, or was it was it? I think uh, it's a good point. The cases that I've it? seen work were all black and white books, color covers, um, pretty straightforward. I mean, the Sarah Palin biography is the one I was <laughs> was very straightforward. But a new, I mean, that, that publishing company, tiny publisher, had like 10 books or something, tiny guy up in Oregon or something, had this book on this obscure governor of Alaska or whatever she was. Anyway, and his book then, obviously, every single journalist in the world wanted her biography immediately. Um, and then everybody else wanted it as soon as the journalist told everybody about it. And um, it, was, it was kind of out of control to the point that he sold the rights to another publishing. I mean, he made a ton of money, but then he said, I can't deal with this, <laughs> and, just get, and sold it to somebody else, um, which was interesting. But it was, yeah, I think it was a good example. And that does happen. Things come in and out of favor. Things spike in the media. And you need to be instantly able to respond. Now, ebooks, obviously, you can do that very quickly. But if you want to do it in print as well, 
um, it's that in-stock protection solution that works. I think color, the whole issue of color is not quite there yet. I mean, we're, we're a big children's publisher. I've left a couple of catalogs in there if you want to pick them up of children's books. We're just putting our, we, we, I haven't put anything in to our POD at the moment for, for children's, partly because of the cost, but also because of the, the quality. You want to make sure that it's going to be a good experience um, uh, for color. Um, but I really do think that's going to be happening in the next 12 months. So the, as the price comes down, the quality is good. Um, it is different. It's not the same. But you could also design for it so that it looks even better than it can if you're trying to make a leap from a conventional look to a digital look. Um, yeah. And then the, on the low end, you've got this inventory-free solution. So it's looking, you really need to think about the demand for the book and where in the marketplace is the demand coming from. So if it's a lower demand, if you've maybe had your bite at the cherry and it's a lower demand thing and you want to keep it available, um, or you want to preview something. I had, I had a request today. We had a, we've got a book called um, We Don't Do God. It hit all the press over the weekend because George, um, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, previous Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, was on the radio. And um, we've had a lot, and we're having more <coughs> press coverage today. Lots going on on that topic because of the council, um, this bit of a council, wasn't it, who uh, stopped prayer, I think, before council meetings. Um, it all became a news item, actually. And so he's done a book on the marginalization of Christianity um, called We Don't Do God. And that has kind of spiked. So we're fortunately we have an ebook all set and it's there and it's all happening. So, and it's uh, just being released. Um, so it, it can be your insurance policy. If we run out of stock, I know would be good. That'd <laughs> be serious to me. We might not. It might be fine. We just tick over and we just keep replenishing. But also, if you're in Japan and you pick it up and you want to hear and you want to read about it, you can get one if it's in the uh, an on-demand solution. So those are the models for publishing. I then picked up a couple of examples of ebooks and print books and what people are doing in different media. And this also has audiobook in it as well. Um, so Billy Graham is a evangelical preacher in the U.S. who has done a book that came out in October. Um, so he does a lot of, of reading and also um, audio stuff. So he's done a recording. Thomas Nelson are recently acquired by HarperCollins. Um, they're probably the largest, they are the largest. They and Zondervan now combined into one house of the largest Christian publisher. Um, <clears throat> and they, uh, this book, I just thought was interesting here. Because you've got your Kindle edition, you've got a hardcover edition. So these are different price points from Amazon. You've got an audio book. And then you've got an unabridged audio download, which means it won't be recorded in the same manner, but it means for somebody who's um, visually impaired, they can have the whole um, manuscript done. Um, so it's coming out, it's getting the timing about these things. Again, this all came out together. So they actually launched a, quite a package of different um, media all at once when the book came out in October. Um, Again, this, this would be an example. In that particular community, this would be a bestseller. And the idea of having gap or in-stock protection will be in the background for this, I'm sure, uh, knowing Nelson's uh, commitment to POD. Um, another example, I think I've got to hit a few things, but this is a bit confusing. This is a, an STM publisher, Springer, who is um, a German company run by a Dutchman. Um, that is, um, doesn't have a presence here, has a small sales uh, presence in the UK, but is, is a, it's a very large, I mean, it's probably Reed Elsevier's biggest competitor. Um, looking at sort of how to introduce printed textbooks as an extension of an e-book subscription. So they're selling whole collections of e-books to libraries in the US and then they're offering a service to patrons of the library, not to the marketplace, not through Amazon, not through all those channels, but just to the people who subscribe to their very expensive database, a service which allows my copy, a personal copy in print paperback and delivered straight to your home from, in effect, the, the um, Springer system. So you can go in and order it. So you basically, they've got this, they sell the package, this is that person here, to the library, the library buys it, the library then gives access to the patrons and access to the e-book packages, and then the, the patrons can buy it or opt into it, 
and then the next step is it goes back, the order goes back to Springer, they pass that on all through EDI, so this is pretty much instant, to a print-on-demand provider, in this case in the US it will be Ingram, and then that gets shipped, drop shipped straight to the customer. Um, so these kind of ad value added services, I think that's something to be thinking about. I'm sure nobody's come up with all the possible variations you can do, kind of marrying these two things together. And then from the um, sublime to the ridiculous, is that bad? <laughs> that's a continuity. Um, romantic fiction. I like the Mills and Boone model the best. I have to say, I was really pleased we have the telemanaging director that on that last week. I saw Mandy, who, does, who runs it in the UK. It's a great model. Um, they are actually probably the most successful consumer solution in the ebook world at the moment in terms of money generated and um, reach to consumer uh, markets. And uh, the things I wanted to just pull out about what they do um, one of the things is they, they offer free, see again, free, makes it, free online reads. So, in other words, as part of their Proposals. You can go and check and see if you like the style or the feel of this particular um, series or group because they're doing lots of kind of formulaic publishing. So it's coming out of a certain type. So I don't quite like these are the what's the series? Yeah, they've got like modern, medical, historical, desire. They have hotter ones and the cooler ones, kind of a range. <laughs> I don't know with different la language and things. But they have this whole community thing. So that if you look up here, there's a whole community. And there's a lot going on with that community of um, romantic fiction writers and readers. The other thing is they allow you to buy these ebook shorts. So and this is a big trend in fiction right now, the small short story or the short. short what you could commute, uh, consume on a commute on a mobile phone, that's the kind of short. Um, so they're almost like sampler type things, and you can buy those just to see if you like something as well. So you've got free, you've got bought, and then you've got this whole combination of this whole community that you're developing, but it's, you've got the subscription model, which means you're getting your money up front as a publisher, and then you're delivering stuff after, which is a hugely successful financial model because you aren't having to wait, invest cash up front, you're getting your cash first, and then you're delivering product to the consumer. And it's worked extremely well. It may only work in this community, but it's an interesting model to see um, if other communities might be able to replicate it. And then to kind of bring it back to, together, this is my last slide really, um, on the digital workflows delivery and tracking. There's so much going on on this. I mean, we're doing, you know, there's a lot to take in on this whole area, and I'm sure you'll have all kinds of other parts of the course where you're covering aspects of this. But one of the fundamentals is getting the, the thinking in your publishing house about the digital workflows to make sure when you're commissioning digital assets, you're tagging, that you're organizing, maybe using a content management system, um, which could be delivered for you over the cloud uh, to a web browser so you don't have to invest in lots of capital um, IT systems, but that you're thinking about from the very beginning, your digital assets, what to do with them, where am I going to put them, which channels am I going to put them out, and also so you can repurpose those digital assets to really get the maximum value because you might want to do all kinds of other derivative products um, from those digital assets. And XML is really at a very critical time right now. Um, there are some publishers who, I mean, I believe Faber are actually doing this with t XML tagging on all of their simple reflowable text type products, your reflowable ebook. <coughs> They're tagging just about everything in XML from the get-go. It's a bit harder when you're starting to talk about layouts and, and digital um, fixed format type um, products, which is what I'm engaged with um, doing quite a lot of, um, because there aren't yet the protocols around uh, exporting files from something like Indigo that will allow you to um, and InDesign, we get Indigo sort of on the print side, but InDesign on the design side, so you can get exactly what you want that works. There's a lot of checking and hand-holding, but that's where the industry's going, and I've seen some amazing things from a company called Zoo Digital. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they are working with the film industry and Disney and Nickelodeon and really dealing in multimedia, and they're tagging everything in the background of the database. So you upload a digital asset, and it's completely XML tagged in the background um, as part of the uploading routine. 
and then that's held in your content management system. And I can't overemphasize how important all that stuff is. It's terribly boring, but if it doesn't work, you won't be able to do the flexible things that we're talking about on the creative side. Tracking the digital assets and their distribution is another big area that's going through change at the moment. So there's companies coming out with services and because it, you know, we have 14 ebook channels that I'm trying to manage, you know, and as for a smallish company, we have 53 employees, it's not huge. It's quite a task to do. So you need to be looking at systems that will help track and tag and also audit so that you get all your money back and you can show an auditor, here are all the reports across these different revenue streams. So that's certainly true for ebook, but also for POD, because the way you're paid your money is slightly different than a conventional way of being paid. But you are being paid direct, not through your distributor, by and large. It's all coming directly to you, which is good for its cash positive, thinking cash positive. Um, and um, and it's, it's, you know, it, it's definitely worth doing, but you need to bear in mind that there are some complexities at the, the tracking end of it as well. And I think my... I'm done. <laughs> but I not much time for any questions. But <laughs> I'd like to say thank you very much.